According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews. As we pick up where we left off last week, let's look at Hebrews chapter 6 and 7. Where did I stop last week? Somewhere in there, 6 or 7. And the main point of what has been said is this. That's how chapter 8 gets started. We have such a high priest. You know, last hour was there with all the pressure. <laughs> this hour I hadn't even thought about. So let's start with prayer and let's uh, see how the Lord provides. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you just thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for your faithfulness. Rejoicing, Father, that in your grace we are saved. In your grace we grow in the Word of God. In your grace we minister and serve one another. In your grace we are equipped for what you have designed us for, not in this life, in the life to come. And I pray that we understand these things as it relates to our study here in the book of Hebrews. Thank you for the last three years, three plus years that we've spent in this book. And uh, now that we're tying it all together and getting ready to move on, Father, we just identify that there is meat, there is such meat of doctrine in this book that we need to study it over and over and over and, and live it out. So, Father, bless our time of review today as we uh, pick up where we left. And uh, thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so and when we look at chapters 5 through 10, we're really encapsulating uh, 53 hours of teaching. And uh, the slide says a one-hour snapshot. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, we started last week, and so this week means it's a two-hour snapshot. And if I don't get through it this week, it means we've got a three-hour snapshot of 53 hours. I, I suspect we can get through it this week, but that's, that's just me. Um, because what we're doing is we're tying together 53 hours. They're classes number 49 through 102 in, uh, in uh, the Hebrew series. If you go back to the website and you click on those MP3s, they're still sitting there and you can listen to them. And, uh, and now you have printed notes whereby you can listen to them and read through the printed notes. Last week we were looking at the usages here of Psalm 110. The fact that you are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek is a promise that uh, God the Father makes to God the Son. And it's referenced in chapter 5, it's referenced in chapter 6, and look three verses in chapter 7 where it keeps coming back again and again and again. That Jesus in his victory, having accomplished what he accomplished on the cross, is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is appointed as a high priest. And this priestly ministry is not a Levitical priestly ministry. Jesus isn't qualified to be a Levitical priest. It's a different kind of ministry. It's called a Melchizedek priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. The pattern that we have in Genesis 14 of a prophet, priest, and king by the name of Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. And uh, these marvelous previews of the coming of Christ that can be found in the book of Genesis are exciting for us because when we wrap up Hebrews, that's where we're going next. We're going to Genesis and uh, be excited to get into those things there. Melchizedek doctrine is not for babes. It's a meaty doctrine for mature believers. Centered in the high priest who is the source, grounds, basis for eternal salvation. 
There's no way that, you know, once Melchizedek comes on the scene and departs, even Melchizedek was not a Melchizedek high priest, if that makes sense. He was priest of God Most High. He was the king of Salem, the earliest name of Jerusalem. He was a king, priest, prophet, king of Salem, but he was not a Melchizedek priest as you and I are in Christ. That requires the finished work at Calvary. That requires the being seated at the right hand of the Father. That requires the coming of God the Holy Spirit to baptize believers into union with Christ. This Melchizedek priesthood requires Calvary uh, in order to function. So even though it's named after this character from Genesis 14, he himself was not a Melchizedek priest in the sense that Jesus is or that you and I are in Christ. I hope that makes sense. All right, we talked about biological aging and growing up spiritually. Uh, One is automatic, the other is pretty rare these days. Uh, But biological aging just kind of happens. You watch a child who's born and grows, and next thing you know, they're walking, then they're running, then they're going to college, and and before you know it, they're uh, out of the house and doing what they're doing. Biological aging happens. Spiritual aging takes work, takes diligence. And in Hebrews 6, it says, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. And so it takes diligence. We have to press on. It is a pressing on endeavor. Like Philippians 3. Philippians 3 says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. That means we don't boast or we don't celebrate or we don't get a big fat head because he preached 6,000 times. You forget what falls, be, what came behind. That was the big deal last hour. All the pressure was on last hour with my 6,000th sermon. But over and done with now. Forget what lies behind. 6,001, reach forward. 6,002, reach forward. Keep going. That's what we do. We press on. Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I, re, I reach forward to lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So biological aging is inevitable, not spiritual aging. We have to work at it to grow. Apostasy. There's a warning here in Hebrews 6.6 that scares a lot of people. We looked at it last week. It's not losing your salvation and, and, and going to hell when you die. Apostasy is a departure from the Christian walk and a re-crucification of Jesus Christ to self. It is a living blasphemy. It says, well, the Father was satisfied. God the Father is propitiated, but I'm not. And it puts yourself in the place of God in, uh, in walking your own walk instead of the walk that's by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's a blasphemy that exalts our dissatisfaction over God the Father's satisfaction. And so uh, when it talks about in Hebrews 6, in the case of those who have been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, those are idioms for getting saved. When you've been enlightened, you've seen the light and you've come to faith. You've received eternal life. You've trusted in Christ for glory. And it says you've tasted of the, of the uh, heavenly gift and have been made a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Every believer in the church age is baptized by God the Holy Spirit. And then, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. You know, what we have today with the filling of the Holy Spirit, the permanent indwelling, our spiritual giftedness, all of the church age assets that we have in Christ is just an appetizer. 
The main meal is still on the way. The full meal that we're going to get in glory. What we have now is just the down payment. It's the earnest money of our inheritance. It's the appetizer of the feast. Some people confuse the appetizer with the main feast. <clears throat> we're not at the wedding feast yet. But then for these believers to then fall away. Falling away, that's apostasy. That means that you decide to do your own thing. That means you decide, yeah, I'm sick of church. I'm sick of the Bible, all those religious people. And you just start living in the world and for the world. But here's the, here's the glory. You're still saved. You cannot throw away your eternal life. Now, because your walk is in apostasy, you're going to sign yourself up for some discipline. And God's going to very faithfully spank you as a child gets spanked because he's a father who loves you. But apostasy is not loss of salvation. If you get nothing else out of 190, however many classes this is, what is this, class 151? All right. Out of all these classes, if you learn nothing else, the book of Hebrews ought to teach you eternal security. You cannot lose your salvation in Jesus Christ. Only an indestructible life can facilitate an eternal priesthood. And we get to Hebrews 7, 17, and we see his priesthood. We see it in all of these chapters. But we see the power of the indestructible life. In verse 17, he's called a priest, and we find our own priesthood in this. Did I decide there was a typo on that slide? I don't remember. The power of an indestructible life. Only an indestructible life can facilitate an eternal priesthood. There it is. It's in verse 16. <clears throat> so here's the things that are evident. And uh, this is where things get obvious. And because they're obvious, everybody should know them. But because not everybody knows the obvious, the author of Hebrews is laying it out here. <clears throat> and he says in verse 11, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, parentheses, on the basis of it, people receive the law, but if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? You can get my Bible up here on the slide for folks that are watching, in case you don't have your own Bible at home. 7-11. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, we wouldn't need the Melchizedek priesthood. We wouldn't need Jesus to serve as the apostle and high priest of our confession. In fact, Jesus wouldn't need to go to the cross. But he did need to go to the cross. He did go to the cross. He fulfilled all of the shadows that the Levitical priesthood pointed to. So that's evident. That's obvious. And when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Melchizedek priesthood is not Levitical priesthood. Why do we expect the Melchizedek priesthood has to follow Mosaic law? That doesn't make any sense. That's a different priesthood. Then verse 11, the one concerning whom these things are spoken, remember it's all about Jesus, the one concerning whom all these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. The tribe of Judah produced no priests because the tribe of Judah was not the priestly tribe. It was only the, the tribe of Levi that produced the priestly tribe. It is evident. Again, it's obvious. It's evident. You should know this already. And his readers do. The author of Hebrews is writing to some former priests that are now Christians. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And everybody that mocks uh, an argument from silence, this is an argument from silence, and the author of Hebrews is making it, and the Holy Spirit put it in our Bible. 
All right, but Moses speaks nothing of Judah priests. Never mind the music. All right. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. So what was obvious is now more than obvious. It is now extra clearer still that he is a priest, but he's a different kind of priest who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement. That's the difference. Levitical priests became priests on physical requirements, being born to parents that were priests. You had to be a descendant of Aaron, not just in the tribe of Levi, in the tribe of Levi as a descendant of Aaron. It was only the house of Aaron that was the priestly house. Every other house, every other line of descent from Levi were called Levites. Only the descent from Aaron was called priests, the the Levitical priests. But Jesus did not become a Melchizedek priest on the basis of a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. And I just love this verse so much. And I know I preached it last week, but this power of an indestructible life, that's what we have. You and I are given eternal life when we're saved. We have the indestructible life now. We have the power that comes with that indestructible life right now. And we're not waiting to get to heaven to receive this power. We have this indestructible life right here, right now, from the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ. You are, from that moment forward, a believer. And this is what we have. All right, so we have an eternal priesthood as it is attested of Him. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. See, those other priests, they couldn't last forever because they kept dying. Their power was on a a physical life, and that was a physical life that kept ending, and a procreating physical life that kept producing a son, and he'll be priest after you, after you're dead, but then he's going to die. And then his son will be priest, and then his son will be priest. It's a different kind of priesthood than what we have in Christ. Since we have received this life, we also have received this priesthood. And this is where Hebrews 7 is in great agreement with 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 17 and taking you all the way down to the end of the chapter and on into chapter 2 and verse 10. Talking about you are born again by imperishable seed, the seed of the Father that birthed our new nature in Christ. And the fact that He was the living stone and we also are living stones being crafted together into this temple. It's a marvelous chapter. We covered it last week. All right. Now, the new covenant. Here's what we've got to pick up with. And if you need notes, just raise your hand. We'll get you some notes and uh, make sure we're up to speed. The new covenant is prophesied in the context of Jeremiah's numerous days are coming messages. Time and time again, we have the days are coming messages. And those days are coming messages are vital. If we twist them, if we ignore them, if we forget about them, then we end up misapplying what the the new covenant is all about. So we're going to be very cautious here. And the book of Hebrews does an excellent job walking us through the new covenant in several of these chapters connected to our Melchizedek priesthood. But ask yourself, every time you see the new covenant mentioned in, in the book of Hebrews, is there anything in any of those verses that demands that the new covenant is effective today, that it's in operation right now, that you and I are somehow subject to it, or that we're underneath it, or that we're party to it, or that we're recipients of it, 
or that it has any connection to our eternal life as church-aided believer priests. And the truth of the matter is there is nothing in the book of Hebrews that demands the new covenant has to be here, right here, right now. And every passage of the new covenant can be read in such a way as to agree with Jeremiah that days are coming. That days are coming. And if we have that in our reading, we're in good shape. The problem is, is we all have these assumptions because we take communion in the church age. And when we take communion in the church age, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And because Jesus speaks of the cup as the new covenant, and because we eat the bread and drink the cup, there comes a, a theological conclusion that the church age is under the new covenant today. And that is a fallacy. And, and, and I, I, I've been trying to equip us with this for the whole three years we've been teaching Hebrews. I keep try, I'll say it again today. I'm going to say it again when we get to Genesis. Because Genesis gives us the Abrahamic covenant, which is the, the bedrock of the new covenant. All right? So we want to learn these things. Numerous days are coming passages, such as Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. All right, and you're going to see this again and again and again. Jeremiah got to preach similar messages repeatedly. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That's Jesus. He's the root. He's the branch. And he will reign as king. Well, he's not doing that yet. He's still in heaven waiting for the Father to send him forth. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. A lot of media reports today about this peace treaty that President Trump uh, engineered between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. And I find that interesting, and I find it uh, a blessing, and I'm glad that we're blessing the Jewish people. We don't want to be cursing the Jewish people. But it's not prophetic, it's not fulfillment of Jeremiah or any other prophetic prophecy. And it's not, we say it's allowing Judah and Israel to dwell securely, but not the way Jesus will cause them to dwell securely when Jesus is seated on his throne. This is the name by which he will be called Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. Verse 7, behold, days are coming. We're not there yet. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel, from the Northland and from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. So it's going to be a global regathering of every Jewish person on the planet. And until that happens, these days are still coming. Days are coming, says the Lord. The Exodus is still the Exodus, and Israel still commemorates the Exodus. That's why they have Passover. So they celebrate the Exodus. They say, as the Lord lived, who redeemed us out of the land of Egypt. They're still saying that today because they haven't had their global regathering yet. Once they have their global regathering, they're going to say, as the Lord lives, who brought us into his kingdom and is now seated on the throne of David. Days are coming. You get into Jeremiah 31. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 30, 3 through 7. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, and keep in mind, this takes a united nation of Israel, the north and the south, and all the Jewish people. There's discussion presently about annexing Galilee and, and Samaria, and it'd be great if it happens, uh, but it's not yet fulfilled until Jesus does it in his second advent. 
I will also bring them back to the land and get that I gave to their forefathers, and they shall possess it. So these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is peace. There is no peace. As now, ask now and see if a male can give birth. All right. Do you know how hard this is going to be to restore Israel? About as impossible as a male giving birth. Okay? That even sounds painful. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins? Okay? It happened when Jeremiah was preaching. It's happening right now as I'm preaching. You get to verses like this, it just gets uncomfortable. As a woman in childbirth, why have all the faces turned pale? Alas, for that day, there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress. King James had it as Jacob's trouble. It is the unique day. The church has no part in this. Jacob's trouble is for Israel, not the church. And unless you're going to blend Israel and the church and say, well, it's all the same thing. You want to go to that faulty replacement theology, you can do damage to this text and every other text. It is not the church's distress, it is Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. He will be saved from it. Then we get to Jeremiah 31. So we know the days are still coming because we haven't had the tribulation yet. We haven't had the tribulation yet because Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet. We haven't had Antichrist revealed yet because the church hasn't been raptured yet. The fact that we're still here means these days are still coming. Days are coming. These are the things that must take place after these things. All right. So days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. As I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster. You think COVID's part of this? Not at all. Not even close. So I will watch over them to build and to plant. He has to bring them through tribulation to humble them. Then he can bring them into millennium to glorify and exalt them. Remember, you can't be exalted until you're humbled. Israel has to be humbled. So days are coming, days are coming in those days. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So notice, is this the church? Is it the church's fathers that he brought out of Egypt at the Exodus? No, it's Israel's fathers that he brought out of Egypt in the Exodus. It's Israel's fathers that walked through the Red Sea. It's Israel's fathers who received Mosaic Law. The church's fathers were never in bondage in Egypt. The church's fathers were never went through the Exodus. The church's fathers were not given Mosaic law. The church was never under law. Why would we receive the new covenant? The new covenant replaces Mosaic law. And it's for Israel, it's not for the church. Anyway, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. It is so clear. Days are coming, days are coming, and they're after those days, the tribulational days, the days of Jacob's trouble, the days unlike anything this world has ever seen. So we're not there yet, and we can relax. Get down to verses 38 through 40. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. We say, well, Jerusalem's rebuilt today, isn't it? Mostly, kind of, a little bit, but 
it's going to get destroyed horribly in the tribulation. It's going to have to be rebuilt for the millennial kingdom. And that's what's going to happen there. Days are coming. So when we get to Hebrews and we have uh, New Covenant messages like Hebrews 7, like Hebrews 8, like Hebrews 9, every time we have Hebrews 10, every time we have a New Covenant message in Hebrews, let's keep it in the uh, Jeremiah context of days are coming, that it's after the great and terrible day of the Lord, that the church has no involvement in it. The new covenant, we're told, will supersede the Mosaic covenant and be made with those whose fathers were redeemed out of Egypt and given the Mosaic covenant. So the church, our fathers were not redeemed out of Egypt and we and the church, we were not given the Mosaic, the Mosaic covenant. That's two huge reasons why we're not given the new covenant beyond the fact that we're not Israel after the tribulation. Okay? And so when we're, this all comes really out of Hebrews 8 9, um, but the, the coming of the, of, the Abraham, of the new covenant here, starting in verse 7, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. More of that logic from, from chapter 7 being repeated here. That that first covenant, Mosaic law, was never going to give them their kingdom. Because all it was was a fault finder. And, they, and they, none of them measured up. But now he says, behold, for finding fault with them, they kept breaking Mosaic law, Finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. So now the author of Hebrews is quoting what we just read in Jeremiah 31. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And, and you really have to allegorize and twist and pretend and, 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 and to try to take verse 10 and say, that's where I am. You would never put yourself with a red you are here sticker on the, the, the mall map in verse 10, because we're not here. Which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, and we haven't seen those days yet, I will put my law into their minds. Does God do that today? Do you have kingdom law impressed upon your mind today? I will write them on their hearts. Are God's kingdom laws written on your hearts today? Not even close. The closest thing we have is a passage people abuse and Corinthians, where Paul says that the Corinthians were written on his heart and he was caring for them. I will write them on their hearts and they will, and, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now that's somewhat applicable today. He is our God, but, but then it says they shall not teach everyone. His, well, why am I teaching here this morning? <laughs> I mean, honestly, if, uh, if we're under the new covenant, I have no business teaching you guys right here, right now. Has unfinished business remaining. That the blood has been shed, but it's set apart in these little bowls. Yes, he went to heaven. Yes, he cleansed the altar. Yes, he cleansed the heavenly temple. But Israel is still awaiting having the blood sprinkled on them. And they can't have the blood sprinkled on them until they are repentant. Matthew 26 28. And he's eager. He's eager. He wants to drink. Says he won't drink it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. We just had uh, communion last week. Take, eat. This is my body. Takes the cup. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day. See, you know, you would think that he'd be preoccupied with tomorrow morning. He'd be preoccupied with dying on the cross. He's actually fixing his eyes on the joy set before him. He's thinking about the millennial kingdom. That day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. And so after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We get a lot of our traditions here. Why do we end with a hymn before we walk out? We end with a hymn before we walk out because Jesus ended with a hymn before he walked out. We have the pattern here. Anyway, unfinished business. And this is interesting because, um, and some folks might, you know, you've got to take some thought and work your way through this. Some folks recoil at the idea of unfinished business because, yes, he made a tetelestai statement on the cross. He said, it is finished. And, and the Adamic redemption was finished. But Israel's reception of the new covenant was not finished. And I don't think theologically there's an issue there, but still people might react a little bit when, with the idea of unfinished business at the cross. So just want to address that. All right. Symbols, typology, shadow doctrine. Symbols. And this is really a stress from, we could have stressed it in chapter 7. This point of study came out of chapter 9. Symbols, typology, and shadow doctrine. They have legitimate functions and benefits, but no eternal perfection. What a blessing for us, though, that the blood of Christ applies eternal perfection. We don't function in the shadows. The book of Hebrews is so good at this. And, and because we study this in Hebrews, we're benefiting. We get double portion blessings because when we, when we see shadows in Colossians, we know that doctrine already. We know it because Hebrews taught this to us. That the shadow doctrine is not the eternal truth that we should be submitting to. There's a reality behind the shadows, the substance that we should be living. So a little bit ago we were looking at Hebrews 7.19. Remember the law made nothing perfect? The law was just shadows in action. On the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Think about how close believers could get to God under law. Well, the high priest was the one guy that could be there face to face before the Shekinah glory. The other priest could at least get into the outer holy place. The Levites could get into the courtyard, Levites and priests. The Jewish people could get closer than the Gentiles could get. How close could a believer get to the glory of God under shadows and typology? One man, one day a year to represent the people. How close do we get to God? Oh, all day, every day, we draw near, near to the heart of God. There is a place of quiet rest. Think about our nearness. Do we take these things for granted? Do we just assume it's always been the case? We draw near to God. We have a better hope, better promises. Hebrews 9.9. Notice these shadows the way to the holy place not yet disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. You know, every sacrifice that brought him is okay for now, but we're going to do it again next year. We're going to do it again next year. Every monthly sacrifice, every new moon sacrifice, every weekly sacrifice on the Sabbath, every annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, and here we go again. It's another year more reminders. Shadows were never eternal. 
They relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. It's not the Protestant Reformation, by the way. It's not even technically the church age. It's the millennial kingdom when kingdom law is then written on their hearts instead of Mosaic law and tablets of stone. Hebrews 10.1 The law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Never! So here we go again and again and again and again. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, eventually, don't you get there? No, eventually you never get there. That's why you have to give way from the shadows to the reality. That's why Jesus comes, not as a shadow, as the reality, and gives his life on the cross. The blood of Christ supplies eternal perfection. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. So he was the priest and the sacrifice. Because he made the offering, but he was the offering. Without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And it's for this reason he's the mediator of the new covenant. For this reason. Because he was faithful on the cross, at second advent, he will mediate the new kingdom. Oops. Don't do that, don't do that. Hebrews 10.10 By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Isn't that beautiful? Once for all. Only once. For everybody, everywhere, eternally, for all time. Down to verse 14. You see, every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Those Levitical priests, they never sit down. They're always standing up. There's always another sacrifice to bring. But he offered one sacrifice for sins for all time and he sat down at the right hand of God. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 14 says, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One time. One time. One sacrifice. One time. Not over and over again. We don't re-sacrifice. When we take communion, we're not re-sacrificing Jesus. He only did that once. We're doing a memorial. And we're testifying that he is dead until he returns again. There's a place for symbols. It's not our place. We function in the reality. Jesus Christ exposed the emptiness of the earthly holy place and had no need to enter therein. Standing before God the Father, Jesus Christ appeared and presented himself on our behalf. There was actually a vision of this that Daniel saw back in Daniel chapter 7. He saw the Son of Man standing before the Ancient of Days. That's Jesus Christ standing before God the Father. See, we know more than Daniel did. We've got two testaments to work with. And with our hindsight, we, uh, we can give a full understanding of Daniel 7 that Daniel himself wouldn't know. But you remember when he was hanging on the cross in Matthew 27 and the veil was rent in two? The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and rocks were split. The tombs were open. Jesus is on the cross. And he didn't come down off the cross and march over there to the temple and go inside that Holy of Holies or do anything in there. There was nothing to do in there. That replica was just a, a, a shadow and a symbol. 
They didn't even have an Ark of the Covenant after the Babylonian captivity. There was nothing in there. Where did he go? He went to heaven. Matthew has its parallels in Mark and Luke. We don't need to turn there. But Hebrews 9 tells us that he went to heaven. And we know that he did this on the third day. On the third day, he rose from the grave. On the third day, he ascended to the Father. Then he came back and he had 40 days of resurrection ministry. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. That one where the veil rent, that was handmade. Made by humans. A mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. See, the high priest would go in there with animal blood. And then he would come back out and he'd have to do it again next year with a different animal blood. Jesus went once and he went with his own blood. He cleansed the heavenly altar, the heavenly temple. He pleased his father. Set aside those bowls of blood ready to be poured on Israel at second advent. And this is what he did. If it was a shadow, if it was a replica, he'd have to do it over and over again. No. He would need to suffer often. He didn't want to do that more than once. And the father didn't want to do that to him more than once. It's once. The perfect sacrifice. It is appointed to men to die once, and then comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. I love the way the sin issue is removed off the table. The sin issue is dealt with. He comes back at second advent. If you want to read the Daniel prophecy, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And this is a vision. How much of this did Daniel understand? How much of this did he understand between Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? It's not always clear in the Old Testament that they had a full Trinitarian view. But he definitely sees two characters here. One that's on a throne, the Ancient of Days, and one that submits to him, that comes and presents himself before him, and one that is honored and rewarded. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Isn't that beautiful? All peoples, nations, and men of every language. We're going to see this in Genesis. This comes up in Genesis 10. Genesis, the table of nations. God doesn't care and I don't care what your skin color is, what nation you come from, what language you speak. You're a sinner that needs to be saved. And if you've got the same Savior I do, then you are in Christ. And this is what it's about. No racism in the church. Because peoples of all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now the disciples were were quizzing Jesus on this. They said, you know, we have heard that when Messiah comes, he is to live forever. Who? Why are you saying that you must be lifted up and rise again on the third day? Where, where is it you're telling us you're going and we cannot follow you? We heard that Messiah was staying forever. They had all these questions and they were legitimate questions. Based on this passage and other passages, Messiah will come and he will reign as king and he will reign forever. But first advent, was Jesus reigning as king? No. 
He came in humility. He was born of the virgin and he, he uh, lived the quiet life and he taught and he went to the cross to provide our eternal life. He said, I'm coming again. So understanding first advent, second advent, the prophets in the Old Testament didn't have a clear picture on the two comings. They were so confused they thought maybe there's two messiahs. And the popular one was the one that was a king and reigned forever. The unpopular one was the messiah that got killed, that bore iniquities. He was not popular, he was ignored. Back to this day, Jewish people will never read Isaiah 53. It does not come up in their lectionaries, does not come up in their reading, it's never mentioned in their synagogue. The only time a Jewish person will be taught it is when they're in seminary training uh, the rabbis how to refute the Christians that will try to attack them with Isaiah 53. Sad, actually. I've got Jewish friends and I'm praying for the day that they'll see this. Point eight, how am I doing here? This is terrible. You guys have handouts. You have notes. You've got, you can see where I am. You know that I've got eight A, B, and you know that if I just hurry up and get through those, you can go eat lunch. Well, I'm not eating lunch, so I'm going to stick around. And how about that? We're going to. I do have a deacon's meeting though, so we probably need to. There's an eight and an A and a B, and these are so key. You know, here you're getting it in one or two hours, and we went through how many hours? Fifty-three hours. I mean. This is key. When we look at Hebrews 10 and what we do in our priesthood, the priestly function of the church is based on what Jesus Christ did and on what Jesus Christ continues to do. Jesus is active today. He is the active head of the church. What He did on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., That was nearly 2,000 years ago. What He did at Calvary on the cross, that's what He did, and we're thankful for it, and it's finished, and on that basis, we can somewhat operate, but there is an additional basis. What's the plural of basis? Basises? Bases? All right, whatever. On the, okay, so the basis of what he did is only part of it. The basis of what he's still doing, that's also important. Which is why our Melchizedek priesthood couldn't have happened in the Old Testament. Because he wasn't doing these things yet. All right? So let's look at Hebrews 10 and look at verses 19 and 20. And look at this glorious. Uh, I've said uh, for years, I've said Hebrews is my favorite book of the, of the 66 books of the Bible. And then within Hebrews, I've said Hebrews 10 is my favorite chapter. And it's this paragraph within Hebrews 10 that really just shines and, and resonates and thrills my soul. Because of Him, we, we have this confidence. We stand before the Father. Therefore, brethren... Okay, about to become, therefore, brothers and sisters. The Lockman Foundation is updating the New American Standard Bible and it's scheduled for next January, I think, next, sometime early next year. The, the NASB 2020 is going to replace the NASB 95 update. Okay? And the NASB 2020 has, therefore, brothers and sisters. Because they have extra ink 
And we don't want to offend our girls in church that for some reason don't accept the fact that brethren includes brothers and sisters. So, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, so notice the blood of Jesus was then, what's now? A new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, as also then, but now we have, in verse 21, probably should adjust the slide to reflect these verses better. So since we have, since we have, okay? There's two since we haves. There's the since we have that covers verses 19 and 20, and the since we have in verse 21. They're different since we haves. That make sense? Okay? I'm just reading it in English. We can go see the same thing in Greek. Since we have, we have confidence, we have a high priest. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So that's what he did. But now we have what he's doing. And since we have, presently now, a great priest over the house of God. This we have now. So, the priestly function of the church, for you and me, for us to be functioning as believer priests, it's based on what he did and what he's doing now. The fact that he's presently now seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for the saints. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Presently now, what he continues to do. Since we have, since we have, both. Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. See, if all we had was that first since we have, if all we had was his finished work, what he did, if we didn't have the second since we have, if he was not also a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, seated at the Father's right hand, without that second since we have, we could still be saved, we could still have our sins forgiven, we could still have eternal life. We could still go to heaven when we die. But we would not be Melchizedek priests in the high priest of our Savior. You see, it takes both. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus did that to us when he saved us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can never lose this. He is the faithful and merciful high priest. He identified with our sufferings. He is able to come to our aid so we can hold fast. And there's no wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The fact that we are a priesthood whereby all of us are in the Holy of Holies. It's not just one guy going in and doing something and coming back out where the rest of the priests are kind of in an outer place. And then the Levites, the non-priest Levites, are in an even more outer place. And then the non-Levite Jews are in an even more outer place. And then the non-Jew Gentiles are in an even more outer place. By the time you get to those Gentile dogs, you're in the outer, 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 outer place. All right. hope I said that right. Um, we're all within the veil. Hallelujah. 
we all have confidence to enter within the veil, and we all should daily be in the veil. That is, in fellowship, no one confess sin, and walking by faith in our priesthood before God the Father. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to agape love and good deeds. Not forsaking rapture doctrine as is the habit of some. We've, we've rendered that episynagogue there as rapture doctrine rather than quit-skipping church. Quit-skipping church is a no-brainer because we're all together within the veil. Not forsaking rapture doctrine as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see rapture the day of the rapture drawing near. So we have our priestly function. What a joy this is. The priestly function of the church presents each member as a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. You know, the Old Testament priests had to kill a bunch of animals. We don't have to kill anything. We are the sacrifices. We are the priests because remember, Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus was the priest. We likewise are the sacrifices. We likewise are the priests. Because it's patterned after him. Living and holy sacrifices. Romans 12, 1. Familiar with this? You ought to be. Now, how did that happen? All right. Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Here we are. You got woken up this morning, it was an alarm clock instead of a trumpet. We're not raptured yet, we're still on earth. Here we are. All right, Father. So this body that I can't wait to get rid of, this body that's going to be a lot of fun to be raptured and resurrected, it's still the body I got now, and I'm still here. There's more work to do, but this body belongs to Jesus Christ. It's been bought with a price. I'm going to glorify God in my body. It's the living and holy sacrifice. As the blood of Jesus inaugurated a new and living way into the heavenly holy place even the word inaugurated you know you have an inauguration and it's, it means the start of something okay jesus entered into that veil it was the start of something it was the start of all of us going into that veil he's the forerunner not the only runner the forerunner we run with endurance and we run after him hebrews ten twenty. only church age believers boarding it into a sea an Old Testament saint couldn't claim this, not even an Old Testament Levitical priest. Not even the Old Testament Levitical high priest. Not John the Baptist. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest of those born among women. He was the greatest Old Testament saint, was John the Baptist. He was not a living stone, choice and precious in the sight of God, molded into the body of Christ, fashioned into the heavenly temple which we are. Only church-age believers born again into a living hope. Old Testament saints had hope, but not the living hope we have. We are the living stones in this embodied temple. Something else an Old Testament believer couldn't do. They weren't embodied. They identified with Moses. They passed through the Red Sea. They had an identification with their tribe and with their race as Jewish people of the of any of the tribes they were a part of. It's curious to me when, when Satan gets this world all out of sorts and all mad at one another and fighting in the streets. Isn't it interesting how quickly we go tribal? Ever notice that? Whereas in Christ we're not tribal. 
We're a new race. We're a chosen people. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All the Old Testament saints were just, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, days are coming. We have a risen Savior. We have the victory in Jesus they could only anticipate. Get down to verse 23. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is the living and enduring Word of God. Born again with imperishable seed. Get to chapter 2. Like newborn babes, long after the pure milk of the Word, grow in respect to salvation. That's an order. Growth isn't automatic. A human baby has an instinct for nursing, but believers, you've got to be told, you've got to be taught, you've got to be shown how to feed. Coming to Him as living stones, as a living stone, which has been rejected by man, but choice and precious in the sight of God. Jesus was that cornerstone. He was the stone that the builders rejected. Choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones, you could say choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Israel could not claim this in any way. Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. Israel offered up shadows. We offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ based on what He did, based on what He does now. The apostle and high priest of our confession. And so this is what we do. Heavenly Father, I do pray for this uh, message and I pray for this series I pray that the impact of the book of Hebrews lasts far longer than the three years we've taken to teach it. I pray, Father, that it uh, impacts us daily, continuously. We wake up and present ourselves as living sacrifices. I pray that every believer, no matter your gift, no matter your ministry, no matter your effects, every believer identifies priestly function is is, uh, universal for every church age saint. Father, I thank you for Austin Bible Church and the grace and blessings that you've supplied over and over again, sometimes miraculously, but always faithfully. Father, you are so faithful. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, there is coming a day. We will close with our closing hymn.